0: Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a message called The Foolishness of God by one of the members of our teaching team. A regular here at the church, uh, Penny Murray. Some really good stuff here. A couple things we got coming up. Uh, We are going to be launching our Three is Enough groups uh, in a few weeks for Lent. So if you want to do your journey with some other people during Lent, this is a fantastic thing. Also, we have a church campout coming out. All kinds of other things. You can check them out on our Facebook page or at NorthshoreVineyard.org. But for now, let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. So Crispin is out of town this week, and I was supposed to turn in an outline and notes before he left and I didn't. So you can take your own notes on the back because I believe in you and you can do that for yourself. Today we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 and that's on the front of your handout. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So, this is not normally the sort of passage that I pick when it's my turn to speak on a Sunday. To be quite honest, Paul kind of irritates me. Something um, about his writing style, the way he just goes on and on, and he has these very complicated sentences, and something about it just frustrates me. So, when it's my turn, I usually pick up the lectionary, and I just go straight to the gospel passage because it's the stories. It's these narratives of Jesus and his life and how he interacted with people. Man, I mean, that's where the good stuff is, because you can take that, and then you can just imagine it in your head like a movie or a play, and then you just step into it. You become part of that story, and then you let it start to affect you, and then a message just kind of unfolds from there. But when I saw this passage from Paul, it got me thinking about a story I did hear recently. Uh, If you were to take my phone, you would see that all of the storage is sucked up by podcasts. So whether I am in the car driving across the lake, or I'm cleaning the house, or I'm walking around the block having an introvert break from my wonderful family, you can bet money I am listening to podcasts. And one of my favorites is called Invisibilia. It's an NPR podcast. And this podcast explores all of the invisible forces that control human behavior, ideas, beliefs, assumptions, and emotions. And what's brilliant about this podcast is not only does it tell stories, but then it dives into the scientific research behind all of these invisible forces that are at work in each of us. So the story that I heard recently, it was several years ago on a hot summer night in Washington, D.C., and there was a group of neighbors who had gathered together in a backyard. And there's wine, and there's cheese, and there's conversation, and there's laughter. Until about 10 p.m., a man walks into the backyard with a gun, and he starts demanding that everyone hand over their money which really wasn't a good idea because no one had any money. They had just wandered into this yard from their own homes. So let me ask, are you in the story yet? Can you imagine yourself in the backyard of one of your neighbors, hanging out, sharing a bottle of great red wine, until a barrel of a gun slides in between your head and is aimed at someone you care about? Now Brian and I, our first date, we kind of had this happen. And I can tell you, you really don't know how you're gonna react. Um, But I I was thinking about my family, and we're from Texas, so when I picture this story with my family, I see a bunch of extra guns get pulled out (laughs) with the concealed carry permits. Because we're legit. (laughs) Now, this particular group of people, what they do is they start to reason with the man. They plead with him. They say things like, what would your mother think about this? And of course, he responds in anger, I don't have a mother. And everyone present said they knew. This This was not going to end well. Things had reached a severe moment of tension. And at that point, a woman stands up, she looks at the man, and she says to him, we're just a group of neighbors, we're here celebrating tonight, why don't you have a glass of wine with us? And the man stops, and his whole body and face shifts, and he reaches out, and he takes the glass of wine from her, and he brings it to his lips, and he takes a drink, and he says, man, that's a good glass of wine. And then he looks at the table, and he sees the cheese. Is that cheese? Could I have some cheese? And then he looks at the woman who handed him the wine, and he says, can I have a hug? He places the gun in the back of his pants and he walks toward her and she opens up her arms and embraces him. And then he looks at everyone else and he says, how about a group hug? So (laughs) they all get up and they walk over and they all embrace. And then the man walks out of the yard. After the chaos dies down, they discover the glass of wine has been left gently by the back gate. So when I hear this story, my first thought is, yeah, that's just weird. That's just bizarre. Never, never would I have assumed this story was going to end with wine and group hugs for everyone. But this foolish idea, this willingness to extend an invitation to offer up a glass of wine. It had the potential And the power to change everything about the situation. One of the party guests later said, it was as if someone had flipped a switch. This story was headed straight for destruction, and yet somehow the possibility of peace and connection was opened up in the most unexpected way. So this brings us back to the passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul, who's writing to the church at Corinth. It's a very diverse group of people, and they're starting to split and divide. Some people are rallying behind different leaders. Some people are clinging on to certain theological ideas. And so Paul is responding to this division in his writing. And what I'm most intrigued by is what Paul does not do. He actually does not take a side, not even the side of the people who were claiming to be Paul's groupies. A few verses earlier, he says to them, was I crucified for you? Was Paul, were you you baptized in the name of Paul? He has a great spiritual gift of sarcasm, I'm, I'm convinced. No, Paul does not try to impose or force unity by declaring who's right and who's wrong. And he's not telling everyone just to get on his side and to sign his personal belief statement. Instead, he makes this brilliant move. He writes to them and he reminds them of who they are. And he reminds them of what actually unites them in spite of their very real differences. He points them towards the message of the cross. You know, so often what I see is that our approach to truth and spirituality and God is to assume that we are the ones that have it all figured out and everyone else, they just don't got it. And then we assume it's our, our role and job to tell everyone else what they should believe because there's something about that that just feels so wise and comforting to our own egos. But Paul points to a very different way, and he says it's one that's going to seem foolish. I love the way Eugene Peterson uh, translate this passage in the message. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are hell-bent on destruction. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Human wisdom is so tiny, so impotent, next to the seeming absurdity of God. And human strength cannot begin to compete with God's weakness. For as long as I can remember, the culture of American Christianity in the Bible Belt has been the air that I have breathed. But in my early 20s, I began to deeply consider and question so many of the beliefs that up until then I had just accepted as standard and true. So for half my life now, I've been wrestling and questioning and dealing with my beliefs and my connection to God. And from many times in this process, there are times where I feel confused or hurt because I really thought I had it figured all out. I had my mental furniture configured just so. And I was not expecting such a violent shift to take place for my faith to experience such intense pressure, nor could I understand why would God have allowed this to happen. But there were so many things that actually needed to be deconstructed and reassembled. And looking back, I can tell you, uh, while it, it has been painful at times, what it is producing in me, I am so thankful for. But at the time, it just felt like death. And in many ways, it really was, because so many of my ideas about God needed to die. But I remember a key moment. It was this moment of awakening to a new way of understanding who God is and what he is like. And like so many of my own personal moments of awakening, it occurred through hearing a story. The writer and Nobel laureate, Elie Wiesel, who passed away last year, he tells a story of his time in a concentration camp during World War II. And there had been a small uprising in the camp and it failed miserably. But in the process, a German guard was killed. So in retribution, the camp commandment picked three inmates to be put to death. And one of them was a small, frail, little boy. So on the morning of the execution, these three inmates were hung before the entire camp. And the child was so light and frail, he just struggled at the end of his noose. And Wiesel stood there and watched as this boy died in slow agony. And there was another inmate standing beside him. And he looked at him and said, where is your God now? And Wiesel raises his arm and he points to the boy and he says, he is there at the end of that rope. I think Wiesel, a Jewish Holocaust survivor, would have understood exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to say in this letter. It seems absolutely foolish, but if you want to know what God is like, you look at a homeless Jewish peasant who was killed on a Roman execution device in the first century. And then we let that deconstruct everything we ever thought we knew about God. And then we let Jesus be put in its place. And that is what it means to embrace this radical idea of incarnation. And it is radical and it does change everything. And this is the message of the cross that Paul is talking about. Paul says we proclaim Christ crucified and it is a stumbling block to Jews and it is foolishness to Gentiles. But for us, it is life those people who were looking for displays of power and miracles, they're gonna be left disappointed. And those looking for logic and polished wisdom, they can't explain how God is at work in human vulnerability and weakness. The creator of the cosmos found in a weak, poor, rejected human, God found in suffering and death and the receiving side of injustice. The theologian Greg Boyd, he talks about this, and he calls this idea power under. He says that when God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it does not look like Rambo. It does not look like the Terminator. It looks like the cross. And that is what God's power is like. It's revealed in vulnerability in love, in service, in mercy, in forgiveness, in compassion, even in suffering, and loss, and in weakness. So when that woman in the Washington D.C. backyard, when she looked at that man holding a gun, threatening the people she loved most, she made a very unusual choice. Social psychologists explain that we generally respond to others in the same way that we are being treated. So when someone's nice to us, we're nice back. And when someone's warm and open and friendly, we are going to respond with warmth and friendship. But when someone's cold, when someone's detached, we start to pull away. And when someone's angry, we just get angrier when things get violent, we start to respond with our own force. And this is referred to as complementary behavior. And it's our natural way of responding, it's easy. This is instinctive for us. But it can create this escalating feedback loop. And it can only be broken when we act in a non-complementary way. So instead of responding to fear and aggression, with more fear and aggression. This woman broke the cycle. This act of non-complementarity broke the cycle by introducing a whole new dynamic, one of generosity. She opened herself up and she extended an invitation. So what psychologists refer to as non-complementary behavior, we call it grace. The message of the cross invites us to flip the script upside down, to start extending glasses of wine and offering invitations. The message of the cross is about opening up your arms to embrace even your enemies. And by standard wisdom, it looks ridiculous. It's kind of foolish. And it's like nothing we were expecting From God towards us. And yet, those of us who are experiencing this power, it is changing everything. This is is how God chooses to save his creation. Not through force or manipulation or power over. But through sacrificial love. Through moving towards us joining with us by inviting us into the very life and love of God he does it by holding out a glass of wine to us and so we're invited to have this same power this same grace this same power under pumping through our veins And this is where we find our identity and where we find our unity. We find it when we come together, regardless of our differences, and we choose love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And we choose to live in solidarity and stay present when we choose to serve each other, when we make sure needs are being met and people are being cared for, This is what makes us people of the way of the cross. It's what saves us and it's what transforms us. And it's how we experience God here and now. So we're gonna close with communion. We're gonna close remembering Jesus extending to us bread and wine. And as you come forward, I want you to take this time to ask where is the Spirit of God currently moving and working within you, especially in ways you may not expect? So I'm going to pray, and uh, the people who are helping with communion, if y'all could go ahead and come forward. How we do it here is you just take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the wine. I'm going to pray, and then you're welcome to come forward. God, help us to recognize you in the world. Open our eyes to your spirit at work in us, around us, and through us. God, we ask that you would continue to surprise us with your grace and your creativity and your subversive power under. Help us to recognize you. Amen. Y'all come forward.